TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big. Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Hi, everyone. You're listening to HBS After Hours. I'm Young Me Moon, and I'm here tonight again with my friends. Mihir Desai, and Felix Oberholzer-G. How are you guys doing tonight? Very good. You just gave a talk, right, Mihir? Well, yeah. So we have this tradition. I think maybe somebody like Felix might have instituted it (laughs) 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 called um, Bridges, (laughs) which is um, near the end of the second-year MBA student's time at HBS. We have this two- or three-day program where they have a bunch of different talks from different people. And so I gave one of the faculty talks this afternoon. And I have to say, it was... It's like life lessons? Is it It's kind of been be like, like a life lessons, lessons kind of thing. So it's, it feels very high stakes. And I felt like it was even more high stakes because I one of my best experiences at HBS was three years ago when I gave one of these Bridges talks and that morphed into the book that I came out with last year. So I kind of was like... That's my God. right. Yeah. So I like I the was, wisdom of finance. It came out of came that. Out of that last. It came out lecture. of a Bridges talk, and so I was like, my God, I got to like, I felt high stakes. So I kind of um, gave them a little bit of things for their mind and a little bit for their heart. So I kind of mixed it up. It was a little bit of a cop out because you know you basically if you don't know, know what to do, you throw two things at it or three <laughs> things at it. Um, but I'm glad it was a really fun experience, and the kids are like great. They're super encouraging, like afterwards, and that's fantastic. I'm sure it was great. Um, so, Mihir, I know you brought in something you want us to talk about tonight. Yeah, um, I feel like I should do this in the in the voice of Siri, but I think we should talk about voice interfaces. They're growing everywhere. They're invading <laughs> I'd love our to hear homes. You say that in and, the voice of Siri. Yeah, I don't think I can do that. Um, And I want to talk about what they're doing and whether you like them and what role they play in your life. Okay, great. And then with our remaining time, I want to ask you guys about Wells Fargo. I'm trying to figure out. That is shareholder meeting. I'm just trying to figure out how Uh, I feel about it. Yeah. Okay, Mihir, why don't you get us started? So, you know, voice interfaces are now um, everywhere. The one that I think of is Siri, but clearly Google Home is there, Amazon Echo is there. And so I want to know first what role these actual things play in your life and why these, (laughs) whether you like them, whether you use them, whether you find them helpful. And then also, why does everybody pushing their own? And what's the going to be the business payoff from this? Or is there a business payoff? So, So Felix, maybe you first. Who's your preferred voice? <laughs> <laughs> so I have, 
I have, I think, like everybody, I have very mixed experiences with uh, with voice assistants, and sometimes it's just amazing what they can do, right? You think, yeah. like I, I have, I have an uh, an Android phone, and so I use, I often use, uh, okay, Google is like what I say like 15 times a day and sometimes I get like just oh my god how did that just happen (laughs) and then sometimes they're incredibly stupid so for instance (laughs) you ask what's the weather today I asked Alexa the other day and so you know she tells me the weather is going this and this and then you say and tomorrow which every baby would understand <laughs> the voice assistant has no idea yeah. because all she hears is and tomorrow and tomorrow what well we just <laughs> talked about the weather so so this so this lack of context yeah. that you you realize like we're doing as humans we're doing some pretty sophisticated <laughs> stuff where we talk yeah. to one yeah. another and and voice assistants just just can't do it. And but you like them. I mean, you're using them heavily. Oh, I, I have to say, I love Google service by far the best. When I text, I, I'm not like a very fast texter. I I rarely type now. Yeah. I I just I just speak when I when I, I pick text. that up from watching you. So I just have been in so many conversations where you'll have to stop and send a text, and you do it by voice. And just watching you do it so seamlessly, I started doing it as well. And it's wonderful, it, right? It does. That yeah. part does work. Yeah. Like Felix, I, it, it's funny how sometimes they work well and sometimes they don't. I bought an Amazon Echo for my home because of all the you know buzz so around. So did them. I? Yeah, <laughs> I bought one too. And yeah. I um, and I was using it and I was trying really hard to integrate it into my life, but it's got some flaws. And one of the flaws is it doesn't exclusively recognize my voice. And it will build a shopping list for you. But the truth is, it will build a shopping list for anybody that says Alexa. So my son glommed onto this, and he started walking to my room, and he'd say, Alexa, put sheet metal in my shopping basket. (laughs) Put 10 boxes of Lucky Charms in my shopping basket. So it started to just get to be a ridiculous Um, joke, so I stopped using it. So I have to say, I mean, I, I think in general on this podcast, I'm the Luddite because I just always <laughs> feel – I feel so behind. So no. I, I just – I love voice recognition. So recently I actually wrote an entire um, – a letter, like a review letter on – with voice oh, recognition. Oh, for you, see? So that was fantastic. But that's not voice inter- – I mean, I think of that as – I love voice recognition. That's fantastic. Turning it into text. I okay. love that. Yeah. Right. But the voice interface to me is this kind of uh, Google Home, and Amazon, yeah. Echo, and that's yeah. back yeah. and forth. And I just – I feel naive saying this. I don't get the use case. Like, I I don't really get it. And I don't really want to get it. And I don't want Amazon on in my home all the time (laughs) waiting for me to say Alexa. I don't understand why I'm supposed to be so excited about this. And and I am, I confess, I'm a little paranoid. Like, devices around listening Mm. all the time. So what... It I mean, does do you, feel do you, like push versus pull, though, right? Absolutely. This, this is a case where you see a bunch of technology companies pushing something on us that we really weren't asking for. And in some ways, it might even feel premature to some of us. But And what are, why are they so excited about this? So suppose we jump into the future and this works really beautifully, yep. right? Where you seamlessly interact and everything is connected. And I think the issue right now is that they're just not quite there. The reliability yeah. and as a... You know, it reminds me so much. Do you remember when we learned how to speak Starbucks? And 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 you <laughs> the had grandes, to, uh, and it's, it's like it's, uh, that was like the most idiotic, 
lesson I ever had in my life. Why do I need to call a particular size grande all of a sudden? And Alexa in particular reminds me so much of that technology. If you don't say it exactly <laughs> the way it needs to be said, there's basically nothing. But jump into the future and think all the interactions that you have, commercial interactions, yeah. that are going, everything you type yeah, will no, be... That, that's got to be right. I think you're right. I mean, they want you in their ecosystem and yeah. they want you to stay in their ecosystem. And so right now... It's not a great scenario for Amazon if you access Amazon via Google. And in many cases, when you do so, Amazon ends up paying Google right. for that access. Yeah. It's not a great scenario when you access Google via your iPhone, because in many cases, they have to pay Apple for that access. It's so much better if they can seamlessly on-ramp you onto their ecosystem. You know, the second thing I'll say is they're building habits. So if you think about Amazon, they're doing everything they can to get you one step closer to having your desire realized. The minute you have an impulse, if you think about those little dash buttons that they have, the voice interface, it's just designed for you to think it and it will show up. And so I think that's another reason. But I also think for a company like Amazon, when you begin to build your shopping list, what it does is it gives them really unique ability to direct your purchase to their preferred choice. So what they'll usually do is you'll say, I need some AA batteries. And they'll say, well, would you like me to put Amazon Basic double batteries 12-pack in your shopping cart. In other words, the shelf space suddenly shrinks and they dictate what you see first and second and so on. And so I think there's a lot of leverage. I mean, don't I find this experience very alienating. I don't know. Do you, do you, so in this future you envision yeah. where we are talking in this way. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? Well, I mean, do you think it's like a good world where we're talking to the, this device and if walking around the house? I think about it too much, it totally creeps me out because for them to work, they have to be listening all the time. Yeah. I try not to think about that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in a way, the way I think about it, it used to be you were you would write a, a shopping list by hand, right? And it's a piece of paper, and it's just a record that you that is useful. And then maybe at some point in time, you snap a picture of your shopping list and you take it along with your phone. And then maybe you just speak it into your phone, and mm. it's on your phone. And so I think right now, because it's early, it looks like it's going to eat us alive. And I think we will have so many defensive mechanisms to shape the technology and use the technology in a way that is really helpful to us. I guess to me, I think your progression of technology is very helpful. You write down something, then you take a photo of something, and then you do the voice recognition to get it on your phone. That to me all feels good. I think there's a discontinuity with the next one, which is I'm saying something to somebody in a disembodied way, and they are fulfilling my order. So That's why is not that like, different? Um, uh, you know, all the other actions are contained, uh-huh. right? I mean, they're self-contained. Yep. The commercial transaction is a different thing. And so it doesn't— I, Oh, I see. When you write a list, you're essentially a, writing a list you, to yourself. You're writing you're to yourself, yourself, right? You're always talking to yeah, even voice— yeah, re- That's yeah. why I don't think this is about voice recognition. I love voice recognition. Oh, because you're writing to yourself. Yeah, but it's to myself, right? This, to me, feels qualitatively different. But that's actually—so one really funny thing is, to me at least, is, is how the kinds of skills that matter— how they're very different, and then some go out of style and some come back. So I'll give you one example. I think typing, no one will need to know how to type. That'll just be a thing of the past. My dad had a secretary. She would type everything. And my dad could 
because he was in part because he was speaking German, he could speak these beautiful sentences that go on forever and ever. And he would already know how the sentence will end and it would be this one shot and it would be perfect because you have someone who actually types it on a mechanical typewriter. So writer. he's dictating. So he's he's dictating. learning to dictate. This skill is now back. Because if you speak into the phone, so you have to get it right that first time. Because otherwise, you know how it's a total pain to correct text on your phone? It's just about the worst thing. And so it's this interesting mix of skills that go out of fashion, like typing will be useless. But being able to speak beautiful sentences, I think, will be well, really it's so prized. interesting because when you first started this story, I thought, this is crazy because – in fact, writing is such an important part of the way we live our lives, and it has been forever. And then, of course, that's not right. Like the oral tradition right. is way deeper and way longer, and maybe we don't need the act of writing. Maybe it is all spoken word. That's a pretty radical idea. Who do you think is best positioned to do voice assistance right now? Well, I think we're going to revisit our previous battles, which is I don't like Amazon Echo, but I think the use case is strongest there. I see. Yeah. I think in a way it's a little unfair that that voice is so close to Google's core business. Right, one of the advantages <laughs> that they have anything where they, you know, the voice assistant can't really respond, you just turn it into a regular good old search, and right. the good old search right. is also pretty darn helpful. Right. And I think that's one of the reasons why why they're at least in my experience much better than but anyone else. But you use OK Google all the time on your I, phone. I use OK but Google you, for everything. But you know that means that your phone is listening to you all the time. Yes, and that's. Doesn't totally okay. okay. Totally okay for me. Mihir is just, just shaking his I'm just, head. I'm, I don't think I feel like I'm a luddite. Just, I don't, I'm sorry. I'm right. like way behind. You guys are on the frontier, and I really do think the shopping is the biggest use case, especially at home. That shopping use case to me is pretty strong. You want to keep a list. You want to reorder things. Lucky Charms and sheet metal. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, guys, I want to talk to you about Wells Fargo. A couple weeks ago, I was talking to our colleague, Eugene Soltis, about corporate fraud. And just in passing, Wells Fargo came up. And even though we only talked about it for a couple of seconds, it sort of stuck with me. And since then, Wells Fargo, again, has popped up in the news a few more times. So just to fill in the story for our listeners who may have forgotten. So Wells Fargo has had a really, really bad few years. <laughs> That's an understatement. <laughs> put it mildly. <laughs> put it mildly, okay. They have admitted to opening millions of fraudulent accounts, which means if you had a checking account with them, they, without your knowledge, would open a credit card account, a savings account, a money market account. They'd move money around. They'd mess up your credit score and on and on and on. They have admitted to overcharging their mortgage clients, thousands of them. So if you had your mortgage with Wells Fargo, then chances are they cheated you on it. I did. I did have a did Wells you? Fargo mortgage. Yeah. You did. Yeah. You were probably cheated on it. Welcome to the class action. There you go. <laughs> auto insurance fraud. They forced customers to sign up for auto insurance that those customers didn't need. They have retaliated against whistleblowers inside the company who tried to report wrongdoing. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. So I guess my question is, what does accountability mean in a context like this, where you just see a repeated pattern of criminal behavior 
here's what's happened to Wells Fargo. So the first thing that happened is they were hit with a $185 million fine. Some of the executives were fired or forced to resign. There were some clawbacks. In some cases, they had to give some of their salary and their bonuses back. More recently, the Federal Reserve took the rather unprecedented step of essentially putting a lid on their balance sheet, saying yeah. you cannot yeah. grow yeah. your so assets. Interesting. That yeah. was fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. You can't grow your assets until you clean your act up. And then last week, they were hit with another $1 billion fine around auto insurance and mortgage fraud. Having said all of that, I know it sounds like a lot. No one has gone to jail, yep. and no one has been charged criminally with anything. So agree or disagree, this is the right amount of accountability for this kind of corporate wrongdoing. I think this is just incredibly difficult. And so um, I think the way I think about this is there is management and then there is something called the corporation. In my mind, the culpability lies with management. So I want to see management bear the burden. What I don't fully get behind is now there's an organization and we're punishing that organization. The corporation. The corporation, which means that we're punishing employees who may or may not – And shareholders. And so then why are we doing that? So uh, they may or may not have been complicit in it. There may be incentive reasons to do it, meaning if you're a shareholder, you got punished in Wells, and you now know you have to create the governance mechanisms in the next board that you're going to do. And I maybe buy that. Um, but I, I would like to see this tilted much more towards management and less, you know, towards the corporation and the capital providers bearing this brunt. And then, by the way, I will just say, I think the Fed move is kind of brilliant. Like, you know, it's kind to of... Which one are you thinking about? The capping, the, the, the capping, the like the $2 trillion, I think yeah. what they said is $2, $2 trillion, trillion in assets, yeah. you're capped yeah. out. Yeah. That's they also a, replace board members, right? And they replace, yeah. yeah. And that, which to was, me, is kind of brilliant. Yeah. Um, but I'm getting a little uncomfortable with this logic that we're, you know, we're going to penalize something called the corporation, which yeah. is really the capital providers. And then you have to ask, why are we doing that? So that's, that's where I come out on it. Felix? I think one difficulty is even when people get punished financially, clawbacks, and so on and so on. If you look at the subsequent careers that they have, they're often quite nice. Mm -hmm. Okay, And so sort of thinking about, oh, yes, responsibility lies with management, and so we punish management, and how do we typically do this? The way they did this was largely financial. Yeah. And there's just very little evidence that financial punishment then has the kinds of incentive effects that you would hope exactly. it would exactly. have longer exactly. term. Yeah. Exactly. So this, I think, is one of the key problems, that we, that we don't really have a great incentive system mechanism to provide the kinds of incentives that the last thing you would ever, ever do in your career is do something like what people did at Wells Fargo. I mean, in this case, it seems even worse than that. So because the crime was so comprehensive and so systemic, yeah. it's harder to punish individuals. In other words, if there were one or two people, senior executives, who had maybe embezzled money from yeah. the firm, it would have been easier to go after them in the criminal justice system. But in this case, you have a system where the incentives were put in place and rank-and-file employees were actively encouraged to behave in ways that everybody knew was wrong, which seems to me to be a far bigger crime 
And yet we don't seem to have any mechanism for holding these individuals accountable. I find this case to be enormously frustrating. Yeah. And it's not unlike, I, I think, also the Volkswagen case, right? I mean, where you had Another incredible duplicity yeah. going through the organization. Right. Um, there's just two ways to attack this, right? Which is we, we, we extract more out of the management, mm-hmm. right? And we take a pound of flesh from them, and that can happen in the form of money, and that can happen in the form of jail time. That, to me, feels much more direct. The way we're going about it is an indirect mechanism, mm-hmm. which is we're punishing capital mm-hmm. providers so that they will not put pressure on managers to do those kinds of incentive schemes. Right. That just feels more indirect, and it just seems like it's less likely to to bear out, in part because the capital providers who are bearing the cost today were not the ones who exactly. supported the company back exactly. then, you know? So it's a very, very unsatisfying resolution. Exactly. What about the Federal Reserve move? Again, it seems like punishing the corporation yep. and to some extent punishing current and future executives as opposed to the ones that got the company in the mess to begin with. Yeah, I think that is true, but it, it has this feel of a regulator doing their job, which is to say, look, um, there's behavior we don't agree with. It's about risk-taking and it's about incentives, and we're just capping you. Uh, the reason I like it is it, it feels a little smarter than pay a billion dollars. Mm-hmm. Like, what the heck does that do, right? right? This is actually, look, get your house in order. And when you get your house in order, you've demonstrated that you got your house in order, you get to play again. Would you break up Wells Fargo? That, I think, is you're getting to the, exactly the right question, which is the other way to think about this is just to say, and somebody else could make this argument, which is there's a culture. It's broken. Yeah. If the culture is broken, then you break up Wells Fargo. And then it's not about recovering anything. It's just about breaking it up. The, the reason I find that to be provocative in a positive way it changes the legacy of the people who did this completely. Yeah. If you were the senior team in control of this company and you essentially destroyed the company, it changes the narrative around you and um, and your life in a way that matters, I think, culturally. I think it matters. Yeah. The second thing is, is it's not clear to me that you can remediate a company like this when the problems are so deep-seated. Yeah. If you extend that logic, right, we're on the 10th anniversary of the financial crisis, right? What did we noticeably not do? What we did not noticeably do is actually take a large bank and break it. We didn't do that. That's it, right. We didn't do that in an aggressive way for all kinds of reasons. And it's an interesting question. Like there's an alternative – you know, this would be a great piece of fiction, like the alternative path we could have taken yeah. <laughs> if, you know, yeah. we had busted yeah. up these Absolutely. banks. And it's yeah. um, and instead, what have we done? The, yeah. Those banks have gotten larger. Um, we've restricted entry right. in a really, really weird yeah. way. Yeah. And, you know, you have to kind of ask yourself, what, what have we accomplished? Uh, now, maybe there's been enough remediation in behavior inside those big institutions. That doesn't sound quite right to me, but maybe that's yeah. happened. Yeah. Um, but this is a much broader than Wells Fargo in a way, right? And yeah. we lived through this and we basically chose not to not to punish those institutions in any significant degree. So one reason, Young Me, why I think your point about culture is so important is because if you look at corporate wrongdoing around the world, it actually is in a, in a very deep way uh, reflective of the culture, of corporate cultures, of national cultures also. Um, I had a conversation with one of our graduates not too long ago, and he, he has lived in Japan for a very long time. And he said one thing really remarkable about, you know, Japan, obviously not scandal-free, just think Tanaka and mm-hmm. so on, like yeah, yeah. company after company mm-hmm. after company. He says, you look at the details of the scandals. And one really interesting observation is lots of wrongdoing by individuals, never for personal financial gain. 
They do it because the they want their manager to look good. They worry about the reputation of the company. <laughs> they think they can fix the problem. That's the sense in which Volkswagen is also a little different. So it's not the, in the Wells Fargo sense that if I open 200 accounts, this is how much I get paid. And as a result, we have hundreds of people right. who yeah. right. are engaged in individual wrongdoing. Right. I think that, yeah, you're, you're putting your finger on something that's very distinct, right? So the Wells Fargo, you have formalized incentives for bad behavior. Yeah. That's right. Right? And in Volkswagen, as I understand it, you have subtler influences about helping the organization, which get distorted, and maybe my own career if I'm a whatever running the that's diesel right. business. But it isn't the systematic implementation of perverse incentives, which is what Wells Fargo feels like. If you could be judge and jury in the Wells Fargo case, what do you think would be an appropriate punishment? I think breaking up the bank is, in particular now that we, you know, 10 years after the financial crisis, we, it does seem to be the case that there's significant benefit to being large, right? When you look at mm -hmm. the financial services yep. institutions that win in the market, they're, they're, they're the big, the, ones. They're the big yep. ones. And so uh, one reason why I like this idea of breaking up the bank is that in a way this will make it very difficult for Wells Fargo to grow into what it is today. And so if you wanted to send a signal where it's not so much the case that an individual will lose their job, because who knows exactly? I think mm. our mm. ability to determine the circumstances under which people did maybe horrible things, maybe they were negligent, maybe they didn't think much about what they, who knows exactly. But I do think without interfering in the life of individuals, violent rank employees, breaking up the bank would send an enormous signal to well, everyone yeah. at Wells Fargo that we don't so tolerate this kind of a culture. I think that's interesting. I think in part that's why I like the Federal Reserve move because I think that's where this is going to go. You think they will eventually well, break up? Well, I think, up? It, but it's not in the active sense that you mean it. When you yeah. say break up the bank, I think what you mean is we take it over, we bust it up. Right. Yeah. And I think that's possible. It's very interventionist, yeah. and it's scary. It's a unlikely. Bit. It's, 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 I think, quite interventionist. But this is like a backdoor to that, right? Which is we're capping you, we're turning over the board, mm -hmm. and what does that mean? The valuable businesses inside Wells Fargo, of which I'm sure there are some, um, will get sold off, right? They will they will be best served to be in other people's hands. And so, where do we end up in ten years? Not that the Fed has taken it over and busted up. But I think that effectively it's a shadow of itself. The valuable businesses have been distributed across to other owners. And in effect, it's kind of been busted up. But it's slower and it's not as interventional. Um, but I think that's a little bit more in the spirit of what we should see. I think so much depends on whether this is a hard cap or a soft cap. The most disappointing thing will be if 12 months from now they take a look and say, well, you've cleaned up your act. So we're going to begin to lift yeah. the restrictions. I think. Wait, so do you think there's no redemption? Are you saying that Wells Fargo can do nothing in the next 12 months? I do believe in redemption, but I also believe in accountability. And I think that it's hard for me to imagine in a 12-month scenario how you could clean something up that is so deeply embedded, is so systemic, when in fact we are still at the point where we continue to uncover new abuses. Yeah. yeah. Well, on that happy note. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see what happens. Yeah. 
before we do picks, I wanted to let our listeners know that if you wanted to send us a note with your HBS After Hours picks, if we like it, we'll share it. You can email us at hbsafterhours at gmail.com. So what do you guys have tonight? So I have an article, which I think is really interesting. It's from The New Yorker, and it's called Japan's Renta Family. It's by Alif Badaman, and it's really brilliant. So there is a thriving industry in Japan where you rent people to play roles in your life. Uh, so, for example, <laughs> you're missing your mother. No, this is what's beautiful about this article. You, you start off reading it, and you're like, this is crazy. And then by the end of the article, you're like, this makes total sense. <laughs> really? No. That's what is beautiful no. about this article. So it's like one of those articles. So, so here's the idea, which is it's run by actors. It's called Family Romance. And these are actors who will come into your life and will play an ongoing role. So, for example, there's a single mother who uh, wants her child to have a father figure. And so she rents this man to come in and play with the boy and pretends to be his father. And then by the end of it, this author is like, um, actually rents a woman for a couple of hours who is going to play her mother. And they have like a reunion. And again, by the end of the article, you're like, well, why not? You know, and so the author oh is basically like, she ended up going for a massage. And she's like, how different is getting a massage and doing this? It's a totally weird phenomenon. But I really think at the end of it, you're kind of like, absolutely. People should be doing this all the time. <laughs> so check it out. It's Japan's so, Rent a Family. It's in the New Yorker so by Ali. This is the same guy that had trouble talking to Siri. I know. He I know. He refused to talk to Siri, but if you rent <laughs> your if you mother, rent a mother, he's okay, completely that's okay. okay Just with that. you read the article, you'll okay. love it. All okay. Right. All right, okay. Felix. We will. So this seems to be the episode where we have a deeply human story. So I'm. I want to recommend uh, a YouTube video. And it's called First Kiss. And it's by Tatia Plieva. I don't know exactly how to say her name. It's P-L-L-I-E-V-A. And it's not exactly a secret. 128 million people have watched it. But if you ever want to see something that is deeply, deeply human, it is out of this world. So what they did was they took 20 strangers and they asked these strangers to kiss. And so the video is, is not long, and you see the hesitation, the, oh, my God, what am I doing? Why am I here? You see the relief when it wasn't quite as horrible as you thought it was. It's, it is really, it is deeply, deeply human, touching. Wow. What's it called again? First Kiss by Tatya Pliva. Okay. I think that's weirder than my pick. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This is HBS After Hours. You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. 
or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Support for the show comes from Brooks Running. I'm so excited because I have been a runner, gosh, my entire adult life. And for as long as I can remember, I have run with Brooks running shoes. Now I'm running with a pair of Ghost 16s from Brooks. Incredibly lightweight shoes that have really soft cushioning. It feels just right when I'm hitting my running trail that's just out behind my house. You now can take your daily run in the better than ever Ghost 16. You can visit brooksrunning.com to learn more. 